Hello everyone, 7 Investing CEO Simon Erickson here, and thank you for listening to the 7 Investing Podcast. Our podcast is made possible by our subscribers, who allow us to empower you to invest in your future each and every month. In exchange, we give our subscribers exclusive access to our monthly stock market recommendations from each of our lead advisors. To support this podcast and join other 7 Investing fans in our exclusive subscribers forum, where we discuss the latest market moves in real time, go to 7investing.com slash subscribe to subscribe to 7investing today. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the 7investing podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more about our long-term investing approach and see our favorite stock market opportunities each and every month at 7investing.com. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm very excited to welcome my guest to the program today. Todd Winning is a lifelong investment analyst. He's worked on the buy side. He's worked on the sell side. He's worked on the retail side. And he's now the founder and writer of Flyover Stocks, which is a newsletter you can find out more about at flyoverstocks.com. Uh, also joining us today from up in Ohio, Todd, welcome to the 7 Investing Podcast. Hey, thanks, Simon. Great to be here. Uh, now, Todd, can you tell us a little bit about the name of the newsletter? You know, I know that that's kind of in some ways a tribute to uh, to Ohio, but what led you to this? And also tell us a little bit about your background, if you would. Sure. So, you know, Flyover Stocks was a combination of a couple different things. You know, one, I'm about 40 miles south of Dayton, Ohio, where the Wright brothers are from. And, you know, my wife's family is down in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, where they did the first flight. And so that... I have that association that was part of it. Um, that's also the inspiration for my logo, which is the, the original Wright Flyer. Um, also, I think when I was at Morningstar, I wrote a series of, of articles called uh, Seeking Small Cap Moats. And really these are stocks that you know, I thought had economic moats, but you know, weren't being talked about. We didn't cover them formally. And so I thought those were that was a great kind of premise to think about. Um, or a framework to think about finding opportunities in uh, companies that aren't discussed a lot in popular circles and are nevertheless really strong companies. Um, I actually went back and looked at the series of, of stocks that I you know, discussed from 2013 to 2015 at Morningstar. And of the 16 companies, uh, six of them went on to be acquired and three of them went on to have over 400% returns through August 2015, and, or I'm sorry, August uh, 15th, 2023. And so that to me is a pretty interesting signal that even though I wasn't doing any in-depth work on it in terms of valuation, just kind of highlighting these over, these flown over stocks uh, that have been kind of ignored by the broader market can produce some great results. And you find some really interesting companies, you know, for the companies that got acquired, you know, the acquiring business thought they were, had a great asset and um, and otherwise they wanted to do great things. And, and there were some flops in there for sure, but you know, there were some, also some really good, good producers, uh, like Winmark was one of them, uh, Badger Meter was another one. So there's a couple of companies in there that people wouldn't have really thought about. I mean, just looking through the wall street journal every day, but nevertheless went on to do you know, very well. Yeah. And Todd, you are a very in-depth and thorough analyst, like you mentioned, you know, writing on behalf of retail investors kind of looking at things a little differently on the institutional side of it. I do like how you framed your goals for flyover stocks. You've said that you're looking for overlooked quality companies led by thoughtful stewards of shareholder capital. 
of course, each one of those words in that means something. And I'd like to maybe dig a couple layers deeper into the onion here in this conversation. Uh, you put out a couple of years ago, a kind of a neat Venn diagram, maybe to frame this, where you've got the three circles for everyone who knows the Venn diagram, just kind of three circles for what you look for, for strong buy opportunities. And you've labeled them as management, moat, and price. And so perhaps for this conversation, let's dig into those a little bit deeper for each one of them. And then also maybe talk about a couple of companies that are intriguing or at least worthy of putting on your watch list. Uh, but the first is is the the moat part of it. You know, I know that you've written expansively about moats over the years, but how do you actually identify a good business? What stands out as a strong moat for a company? I think the easiest way to think about moats, and you know, we can talk about the different sources, whether it's network effects or switching costs, whatever it might be. But you know, if you're just a, a, a non-professional investor and you're you're looking at a company the question you need to ask yourself is, what is this company's unfair advantage? Um, what can they do sustainably that their competitors can't do? Um, it might be that they have a, a network of you know, service terminals that would take 10 years for someone to replicate. Um, it might be that they have some intellectual property that's patented. It might be something that just makes it really difficult for anybody either a larger company or a smaller company or a startup company to you know, eat away at its profits. And so that's, that's the moat part of it. And I think a lot of investors look at that and they might say, that's great. It's got a moat. It's, it's good for a long time. But what often happens, you know, the what reason that moats erode, in my experience, is primarily what happens on the inside of the business. Yeah. You typically hear about companies falling apart. And the reason is because of new technology or it's a new competitor, whatever it might be. But all that starts behind the castle walls to kind of continue that, that analogy that, that Warren Buffett coined. Um, it starts with management not thinking long-term for whatever reason, um, or they're not, uh, they're not agile. They're not responding to new technology. They're not, you know, there's a culture of you know, continuing the inertia uh, of what they've been doing. It's been very successful. You know, why, why, would, why should we disrupt ourselves? And so that, that sort of snowballs over time and it creates a, a very toxic internal culture. And that just opens the door for competitors to, to eat away at that moat over time. So I think a lot of competitive analysis, a lot of competitive strength analysis is focused on, okay, how does this company fit in with you know, competitors, external threats? But I think you also need to spend a lot of time thinking about management and how they're allocating capital, how they're creating a vibrant internal community where you know, people can thrive in their careers and, and help deliver on a purpose or a mission that's, that's bigger than themselves. Let's double click on that a little bit because the, the concept of mode is fairly easy to, to comprehend, but then it's a little bit harder. Actually, it's a lot harder to actually quantify and dig into. Uh, the, the thing that you mentioned that I'd like to, to talk a little bit more about is capital allocation. We're talking about internal uh, management decisions. Say you go and you find a great company that has got a moat, it's capturing profit margins, it's capturing you know, operating efficiencies. The business itself is fine, but that's only one part of it, right? Now management has to figure out what are they going to do with that profit stream for the good of investors. And so when you mentioned capital allocation, um, I know that you and I have chatted uh, before about dividends and that you've written a lot about dividends, but there's kind of different options aligned with what the business itself is and then kind of you know, what the, the type of moat is. You've referred to this as a reinvestment versus a legacy moat in some of the things that you've written about. But how do you think about that? The, the, the tie between the moat of the business, you know, the profits of the business, 
and then the capital allocation of, of what to do with that from a management team. Sure. So there's a really strong link between moat and management and how to think about it. So one way to visualize um, a, a moat is so to, to have a moat, you, you have to be generating returns on invested capital above your cost of capital. And so one way to think about it is you have like a, a printer and if you put $100 into the machine and let's say it spits out a 15% return, you get out $115, but it costs you eight to run the machine and you've got 107, right? And now you can take that and, and reinvest it over time. And so when that happens, you want to be continuing to put money back into the machine as much as you possibly can. And, and that, that's to me a reinvestment mode. Um, you know, legacy mode is when you don't have the opportunities to, to reinvest um, back into that business and continue to generate those, that spread over cost of capital. And so in that situation, you know, to the extent, and, and not every company, it's not like for most companies, it's not like a, a 0% or 100% reinvestment rate. Every company is probably usually somewhere in between, like, especially for a more established company, they might have, you know, 40% to reinvest in the business, but the other 60%, that has to get allocated, whether that's, that's opening the door to M&A, that's opening the door to dividends and repurchases. And so how management prioritizes those things, the reinvestment, the dividends, the share buybacks, um, or the M&A is of utmost importance. I mean, uh, we've all, we all know stories of disastrous transformational M&A deals, and, and that just you know can really um, again, going back to what I said before about, you know, the moats eroding behind the castle walls is that, you know, major trans, major acquisition, transformational, management get distracted, maybe they're dealing with, you know, antitrust or whatever. And so it can become a very, very, um, distracting time. And, and that can open up an opportunity for competitors to eat away at the moat. And so again, that, that all comes back to, you know, that connection between management and moat, you know, the, the moat provides the cash flow to management. And then it's up to management to, to, to reallocate that capital in a way that perpetuates the moat. And obviously, you know, hopefully it makes it, makes it wider over time rather than narrower. Yeah. And if we go back a couple of decades, you know, this is kind of now blurring the line between moat and management, but the kind of the, the, the middle ground there is that you go, you go back a couple of decades, it seemed to be like dividends were the way to return capital to shareholders, right? Companies would go out, produce profits, pay it back out to their investors in the form of cold hard cash. Uh, we've certainly seen in the digital age, M&A picking up a lot more. Uh, and it seems like technology with AI and everything else we're talking about in the headlines right now is progressing that pace of innovation even faster now. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about dividends now, Todd? Are there certain companies that should still always be paying dividends? Or um, is this a different era that you know is, is a little different that companies don't choose dividends as an allocation strategy anymore? Yeah, I think dividends continue to be the strongest signal to investors that the board is confident in the coming years, because this is in our system, typically it's a progressive dividend policy. So in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, excuse me, um, they might have like a flexible dividend policy where they pay 40% of net income that year. And it might be that income might be low, it might be high, but you're getting 40% of that. Whereas in the United States and, and UK and some other markets and other companies, it's a more progressive dividend policy. So they're raising their dividend each year with the expectation that they'll be able to continue to pay that through cash flow and earnings over the next five, 10 years beyond. Because what you don't want as a board 
or the management team is to uh, have to cut the dividend or, or not grow it. So that helps, you know, investors to identify, you know, companies and boards that are confident. Now that confidence may be misplaced, right? And that's, and that's our job as investors to decide whether or not that's a smart move, but that's to me, a great signal of a of growing dividend is that the board continues to be confident in their ability to pay at least that much over the next five years, which means that they expect earnings and cash flows to be at least similar to, to today. And so that's a very good signal. Whereas with buybacks, there's less of a commitment implied. So, you know, you can one year pay 2 billion the next year do nothing. And so there's not a lot of signal in that. Um, someone might say, well, if you think they're, they're buying back the stock at a good price, that's a, that's a good signal that the stock is undervalued, but it doesn't really tell you necessarily as much to me, at least as you know, a dividend does with what their expectations of future cash flow, because the next year they might stop the buyback and do an M&A deal um, to increase their, you know, their sales, increase their earnings, increase their incentives or the other, their, their financial incentives or whatever it might be. So there's different reasons for that. But I think dividends also are a way to shrink the size of the sandbox that management has to play in is, is the phrase that, that I, I often use with dividends. And that's not to say that, you know, you don't want management to do anything you know, in terms of, you know, you want to tie their hands, but by limiting, by rationing the amount of cash flow that's available to them in a given year, they have to be a lot more thoughtful about how they're reinvesting. It's not, they don't have an empty, you know, a blank check. They have to really think through, okay, I've got, you know, whatever it is, 40% of cash flow this year to, to make, you know, buyback decisions or do M&A deals. They got to be really thoughtful about that. Um, there was a great paper done. It was, it's been a couple, it's been a while, so. Uh, the data may need to be refreshed, but there was an article by um, Arn uh, Rob Arnott and Cliff Asnes. Uh, the title is um, Surprise Higher Dividend Payouts Lead to Higher Earnings Growth. And one of their theories was just that, that the, the, the management teams have a smaller sandbox to play with. And so they have to be more thoughtful about how they allocate the remaining cash flow. And so I think there's, you know, I, there's, I've heard great arguments for buybacks. Um, I, to me, I see the value in them. I'm not anti-buyback. You know, I've invested in companies that only did buybacks. But I think dividends um, are a very, continue to be a very relevant way to, to signal to investors that the company has cash, right? And they're generating cash flow because you can't pay out earnings, you have to pay out cash flow. And so that's, that's a real, another important thing to think about when looking at a dividend payer versus another a non-dividend pair. Yeah. And is there a sweet spot you look for, uh, Todd, when you're looking for a dividend pair, you're looking for a company that's paid, maybe paying a two or 3% dividend that's still growing 10 or 15% per year, or you're looking for a higher payout, maybe a five or 6% that's growing in single digits, or it doesn't matter either way. Well, to me, you know, the market doesn't give away free yield. <laughs> there's, there's a trade-off. There should be a trade-off, you know, whatever the situation is. So if a company's yielding six to 8%, you know, the market's not just going to give you a free six to 8%. There's a trade-off there somewhere along the line. Either it's low future dividend growth, or there's something going on with the company where the future cash flows are in question. Um, and on the other hand, you know, a, a super low dividend yield doesn't really give you much income. 
Um, so it, to me, it's a balance. I think, you know, if, if you were looking to set up a dividend portfolio, starting in the middle and working your ways outwards is probably the, the best way to do it. You know, the two to 3% dividend yielders. Um, and again, it comes back to your confidence in the moat, right? You have the, and that's one key thing about dividend investing is you have to be confident in the moat, which provides the company with the ability to generate the cash flows that'll help you, you know, that will increase your payouts, you know, for years to come. So I, it's all, it's all related and linked. Um, so even though I wouldn't consider myself a, a dividend investor, um, the way I might have in the past, I, I continue to think that, um, it's an incredibly important part of thinking through businesses and, um, using the other tools at our disposal, like mode analysis and management analysis to, to think through, um, how dividends might play out and how it might benefit our portfolios. Yeah. And then the, the final piece then Todd would be the, the external, you know, the investor, the, the third part of the Venn diagram is price, right? We talked about the moat, we talked about the management. Now what's the right price to pay for a stock? Uh, I, I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on that personally first, or, or in, a, in a minute, but first, I, since you've seen the buy side, you've seen the sell side, you've seen the retail side of it. Can you maybe introduce this by broadly talking about how retail investors think about the right price? or how to value a company, is that any different than how institutions tend to price a company and figure out what's a good bargain and then kind of maybe settle it up with how you personally think about the right price to get in it? Sure. So I, I would say there's, there's sometimes there's commonalities. It really depends on what the investors are, are trying to do, whether it's retail or, or an institutional investor. I would say for most quality long-term investing institutions, they all use discounted cash flow. Uh, models and then that helps them inform how they think about the valuation. On the other side of that is you know multiples, right? So this the PE is this, the you know, price the book is this, and that that's a, really a shorthand um, for what the market's implying. And so that's that's a key thing I think um, that gets misunderstood is that a PE is just an implied DCF. And so I think to the extent that you can grow comfortable and, um, and skillful at modeling companies in the future, that will help you understand what's going into the multiples in, in the market today. I really recommend uh, Michael Mobison's book on ex uh, called Expectations Investing, which I think is a great entry point for people to, you know, he explains things so well and, you know, it, what, what he's trying to do in that book is um, help you understand what's priced into the stock through a, a DCF model. So here's, here's some assumptions. Here's how, um, you know, discount rate, the, the um, net operating profit after tax and no pat, and that all kind of goes into what's priced into the stock today. And then, then you can make a decision to say, I think that's too low. Um, or that might be too aggressive for my taste based on what I think about it. Um, so I think either way, you know, I think one of the reasons that um, DCFs are so valuable is that they are explicit. And, you know, like any model, they're, they're flawed, right? There are, there are flaws with, with everything. There's downsides to everything. But I, I do think one of the key advantages is being able to explicitly see, okay, the market is down 30% on the stock what does that imply about the out years? Because that, that's really where, you know, I think there's a, um, an, an 
and I used to subscribe to this theory and I changed my mind on it, is that, you know, the market is so, so short term and it, it, it's not. What, what's really happening is that the market is adjusting its long-term outlook on the company uh, based on near-term information. So they're, you know, if they're doing it intentionally or not, what they're saying is that I now have doubts about how this company is going to look in 10 years, because it, when you run DCFs, it, you, it will show you that, you know, the bulk of the company's value is in the out years, you know, what your terminal assumptions are. And so if that changes, if, if the risk goes up about, you know, discount rate goes up or the expected, expected cash flows go down because of concerns about competition and eroding moat, you know, that's why the stock's down, right? And so to the extent that you can continue to have conviction in that long-term outlook for the business, you can say that, you know, I think it's undervalued and here's why. I think the long-term relevance of this business um, will, 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 will play out in the end. Um, so I think that's, that's one way to do it, um, you know, again. So I think multiples are fine for what they are, but just understand that they're implied BCFs. And so um, having explicit, you can sort of, explicit forecasts, you can uh, make changes, you can, you know, alter your outlook um, without trying to say, is this PE right? You can actually see, you know, okay, margins are coming down. What does that mean? Um, sales are, are implied going down. What does that mean? And so you can start asking questions. And I think it's a great way to also grow as an investor and experience is, you know, thinking through those, those unit level economics of the business. So, you know, sales per store or profitability per, per store, um, you know, thinking through those metrics and you know, trying to understand the business at a deeper level than what you might get from just using you know, back of the envelope PEs. Yeah, that's that's some great insight. So you see a stock that sells off 30% by missing earnings by a couple of pennies. It's so easy to dismiss it like, oh, geez, you know, this is a short-term hiccup. Obviously, the company is just fine. You know, this is a buying opportunity, knee-jerk reaction. You're saying there's actually a couple layers deeper than that of why was the expectation off? Why did the company not hit what it was kind of transparently forecasting to do? Uh, there's a couple layers deep to that, though. You're just saying it's more in the out years than just in the quarter that we're looking at right now. That's right. You know, there's an expectation of, you know, if, if a stock falls 30, 40%, it's not because they missed earnings. It's it's what the guidance was or or what the um, expectations, you know, in the market have changed. Uh, that, you know, guidance is down and that implies that competition has increased or whatever it might be. So the, to the extent you can think through that um, it, it is really the key to identifying when the market might be wrong, might be a great time to, to take a position in stock that you've been following for a long time. But the market's not stupid. <laughs> there, there, are times, there are times where there's, you know, you know, emotions take over and crazy things happen. But, you know, all in all, you know, the market's pretty rational when it comes to um, thinking through challenges. And so sometimes those are overblown. Sometimes they're wrong. But you know, our job as investors is to have conviction um, in, those, in that, that long-term outlook that we, that we believe in. And, you either believe it or you don't. If you don't believe it, then you get out. <laughs> so I think that's 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 really the key to thinking through um, some of those big drops in the market is or in individual stocks is just thinking through, um, you know, to to have that conviction going in because you can't build conviction in a crisis, right? You you build a conviction ahead of time. You get to know management. You get to know um, the the product, the service, um, what the offering is, what the value is, um, and then when the crisis happens. You can say, okay, I'm going to stand behind this or something really has changed and I need to get out. So I think that's, 
constant challenge for for investors to 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 process, especially when in times of market volatility. That's a great point. Now, now I have one more question before we jump into some companies, you know, that the investors can put on their watch list. But can you tell me at what we're talking about? This can you chat a little bit more about how you've seen the institutional market? Um, I, I guess embrace innovation or like think about risk because you know we know that. Um, it's it's challenging sometimes if you're running a fund, you don't want to stick your neck out too far and take a huge risk on something that is still uncertain or unproven. But there is innovation and things do happen fast. Of course, you want exposure to that. We've certainly seen as retail investors, you know, growth style investors are, are often eager to kind of get at the cutting edge of what's new out there. But we're not dealing most of the time with with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars like institutions are. Could you maybe chat a little bit about how institutions think about you know, innovation and stuff that is not as established, not paying dividends, not a sure thing with a strong moment. How does it go after the growth style companies out there? Well, I think especially if if you're, I would say a growth minded investor, again, the value is in the out years. And so thinking about how innovation today might impact long-term value creation is, is so critical. You know, just just for example, you know, thinking about, autonomous vehicles. You know, if you have autonomous taxis, what does that mean for Starbucks, right? Will Starbucks have drive-throughs? Will it need drive-throughs? Um, you know, how might that change the the stores and, and how they're set up? And you can kind of see that already with a lot of the digital only type of stores. Um, you know, maybe they're planning for that. Uh, will digital tag, will they have, you know, ads coming into the, to the taxis, you know, to say, hey, you can get a dollar off your ride if you stop at Starbucks or whatever it might be. So I think any any serious investor who um, is concerned about you know, long-term value creation has to think about innovations. Okay, well, like, is this, is this really a game changer or not? And um, a lot of times it's too early to tell. Uh, but, you know, I think you need to be sensitive to that because once it becomes clear to the market that something is changing, they'll sell way before it becomes like a, you know, completely revolutionary. You'll see the market respond because all of a sudden it becomes apparent. Even if it's like, let's say two or 3% penetrated, you know, something's happening here. You know, we need to, you know, again, thinking about the long term, um, you know, sell down the position at the very least until we have more confidence. So I think any serious long-term investor has to think about the technological risks, uh, but also understand, especially if you're invested in thoughtful, uh, driven companies, they're going to react and respond to that. So, you know, if, if, you know, if you're Starbucks or whatever it might be, you know, they've been, uh, on the cutting edge of technology for a long time they were early in the mobile payments and they were early in different things. And, and I have no position in Starbucks, by the way, I'm just, it's just one that I, I remember off the top of my head, but you know, they're going to respond to it and, and they're going to try to make it work for them. So just to like, to sell just because, oh, well, that's going to change things. That's not a, great approach either. You need to think about, you know, how willing would this company be to disrupt itself or to adjust? Um, because if you're in a very calcified business and technology comes along, well, it's, it's going to be easy pickings, right? So you have to, you have to find companies that are willing to change and adapt. And if you look at a lot of the incumbents, um, you know, a lot of the winners from the internet age, it was the incumbents, right? Who adapted you know, into web 2.0 and adapted. I mean, for every, for every Uber, there's a Procter & Gamble, right? Who, you know, use the internet to its, to its, to its benefit. So I think you just have to be um, 
confident in uh, the company's ability to to respond to to change. If not, you need to have a, either a smaller position or be, not be in a position at all. Yeah, Netflix versus Blockbuster. Great point. Uh, let's chat about a couple of companies here. Again, disclaimer: these are not necessarily strong buys or endorsements from Todd, but just some ideas for the watch list. One that you've covered for a long time is Costco. Tell us a little bit about this company. I think we know it pretty well, but you know what, what's interesting for investors about this one? I think you know Costco is one of those stories everyone kind of knows about. It's a great company, et cetera, et cetera. But it's such a wonderful business that it's really hard to understate that. Um, you know, their annual report is eighty-six pages long. That's it. It's an extremely simple business. And if you are just starting out as an investor or you're just starting to do financial modeling, it's the prime one to look at, in my opinion. It's just so simple and so consistent. I mean, they have the uh, the store cohorts, average sales, and it's the same table every year that goes all the way back to like 1997 or whatever it was. Um, and it's just a consistently, they're not changing segments. They're not, and so it's a very clean accounting Um Charlie Munger, I forget the exact quote, but he basically said, if you're ever in doubt about the world, just think about what Costco is doing, right? <laughs> and so, it, so I, I would really recommend people look at, look at Costco if they haven't already or to think about it in a different way. I mean, they're doing some incredible things with executive memberships, um, getting people to upgrade from the basic uh, gold membership to the executive. And I think it's something like four times, executive members spend about four times more than gold members and because they get, they get the cash back. Um, if you think about their growth runway internationally, it's very, very strong. Uh, and it's they are slow but methodical about how they grow internationally. So even though you know, I would say most companies, if they had the opportunity set that Costco had, they would aggressively run out, build as many warehouses as possible, try to have the first mover advantage in some of these markets. Um, but, you know, they're taking their time. It, it's key to them to build up the supply chain um, and the supplier relationships so that they can leverage their strength to get lower prices for their members. And you see that in China, they started with one store and they had like, I don't know, well over 100,000 members sign up for that store. Um, and they're like that weekend, it was it's incredible. Um, and now they're opening, I think, two more in China in the next 12 months if they haven't already. But, you know, they're just... A great business, um, you know, to to study and and to listen to. They have monthly sales updates, and you know, I think they're just incredibly transparent. It's a great company to to learn about. Um, it's it's something. It's a stock that I've owned for a long time in my portfolio. And then, how about one that's a little bit less known, uh, maybe to a lot of investors in our audience? Worthington Industries, industrial company that you followed. Yeah, so this was a company, the first one I profiled in flyover stocks, and. It really, it resonated with me in a number of ways. Uh, it's just up the road in Columbus, not too far from me. Uh, but it's also a, a company with a rare sort of spinoff story. So typically when you hear about spinoff opportunities, it's the, the new company, the one that's getting spun off that people are interested in, um, that typically gets sold off after it gets spun off because the existing shareholders of the remaining company don't, they don't want that piece. And so they sell it and they keep the, the remaining company. But here they're doing the opposite. Um, Worthington's getting rid of the, the legacy business, which is their steel processing business. And, you know, I've looked at Ohio based companies again and again and again over time. And I've never looked at Worthington before until, you know, a couple of weeks ago. 
And it was because it was, it was a steel processing company. And, you know, I was on the basic materials desk at Morningstar from 2011 to 2015. And I saw firsthand what happened with you know, steel prices, you know, plummeted for basically four straight years uh, after the China boom. And uh, just, you know, there weren't a lot of moats there. And so I just, I just didn't, wasn't interested. Uh, but Worthington is spinning off the steel processing business and it's keeping a much smaller uh, consumer products, building products business. And it's higher margin. Um, it's much steadier business, not, not as cyclical as the steel processing business. Uh, the stock has been priced for a long time, like a steel stock, you know, trading less than one times sales, uh, very volatile. And so you know, by kind of getting rid of that volatile element and focusing more on a stable, more steady, um, niche type of you know, business uh, with, with great margins, you know, they can really create this uh, cash flow machine. And one of the things, the other things I really liked about the opportunity is that Andy Rose, the CEO, uh, who started in the CEO role in 2020, but he came onto the scene in 2008 as the CFO. And since he's been the CFO, they retired about 40% of their shares, with it, which is hard to do when you're running a steel business and you don't know you know, again, going back to, you know, flexibility with cash flows, um, you know, to be able to retire 40% of the stock um, over the last 14 years, it's a pretty good, pretty good run. And so if he's given a more stable cash flow business, you know, that could mean more M&A. He said he's done 60 M&A deals in his career, um, 20 of them at, at Worthington. So he's, you know, he comes from that, that background and, you know, it strikes me as a potential kind of outsider CEO. Um, who can come in and, and really do some and you know, create some value? Uh, so that to me is a great opportunity. The balance sheet's very strong. You know they've they've been they've been paying down debt and holding more cash coming going into this to this spinoff, which is supposed to happen in early 2024. So it's just a really intriguing story to me. Um, you know, so so in their consumer products business, they make um, like propane tanks and gas tanks and and things like that, which are you know, not very sexy type of type of business, but you know, there's they have a strong uh, relationship with Home Depot. Um, I, I believe they just raised their price with Home Depot, and Home Depot, you know, it wasn't like a big deal. They didn't have them cut price, so that relationship is very strong. You can think about the propane tank business; that's a big traffic driver for for Home Depot. Um, so it, it, it's a strong relationship they have on the building side. They have got some uh, good jo uh, joint ventures, uh, one of which is called Wave. And that's with Armstrong and they, so if you think about the, uh, acoustic ceilings you have in offices, um, and, and various uh, buildings that have, you know, the checkerboard. So Worthington makes the steel beams that go into, uh, that, that sort of checkerboard pattern. And it's a, it's a whole system where it, it makes it easier to install and the, the builders can you know, get onto the next project. And so. It's a great business, great, great profit margins, um, and it's very steady. You know, one of the concerns I had was, well, we've had this building boom, what happens uh, next? But, you know, the, the, the profitability and the growth has been there since before the pandemic. So uh, that, that joint venture called Wave is, is, is a very strong contributor, and I, I expect it to be in the coming years for that business. So that's, that's one to look at, um, you know, if you're interested in, you know, smaller businesses um, and, and kind of spinoff stories. It's, a, it's an intriguing one, and I've got a lot more written up on my site if, if you want to take a look. Yeah. Any other, any other final thoughts? You know, it's an interesting time out there, crazy macro, you know, we talked about 
ad nauseum the last year or two, Todd, but any other final thoughts for retail investors that are looking to buy some stocks out there? I think you just need to stay focused on the business. I, you know, the, if you think about, think about home builders, right? If you had, if you had talked to home builders in fall of 2022 and told them what the macro setup would be today with, you know, higher interest rates, um, you know, cooling jobs, they would be like, okay, we're, we're not going to have a very good, uh, 2023 and it's been gangbusters for the home builders. So, you know, I, I minored in economics as, you know, in college and none of this was in the textbook, right? And you, you know, it's just, it, it's, so to spend a lot of time on macro, I think this is a pretty common you know, phrase that, you know, Peter Lynch used. Basically, you're, you're, you're spinning your wheels. You're not generating a lot of insight from that, worrying about inflation or interest rates. I mean, those are, those are facts of the matter. And again, going back to having faith in management, you know, can they respond to different, different markets? Um, can they, do, do you trust them to respond and make the right decisions? Um, do they have pricing power? Can they pass on higher costs? And these are all questions that, you know, if you can answer yes to all those questions, um, I, you shouldn't be too worried about, you know, what the macro environment's doing. You know, if, if anything, you know, these companies will get stronger in downturns. You know, the, the weaker hands fall away. The weaker hands are worried about, um, you know, how do we preserve capital? And the strong ones are investing through the cycle. You know, this is another company that, you know, just off the top of my head, but you know, Old Dominion Freight Line is a great business to follow. And if you look at what they've done is they've been investing in, in service centers and warehouses for their, for their uh, lesson truckload network uh, for years when their, when their competitors have been pulling back. And guess what? They've been winning a lot more business and getting a lot stronger. So I think it's really important to, you know, have that confidence in management and the moat and the strategy, um, regardless of the macro environment. Old Dominion is O-D-F-L for anyone who wants to follow that one. Worthington is W-O-R and Costco is C-O-S-T. Kind of a fun conversation here about moats, about management and about price and about investing in general. Uh, Todd winning once again, the founder of Flyover Stocks. You can learn more about that at flyoverstocks.com. Todd had a lot of fun. Thanks for being a part of the 7 Investing Podcast today. Same. Thanks, Sammy. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this edition of our 7 Investing Podcast. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. I hope you have a great week.